If you are new here, this is the uh, point in our service that we look at a passage of scripture together and then reflect upon it. If you have a bulletin, you will find it on the back panel. Uh, otherwise, turn to Galatians chapter 4 for the reading of God's word and here to help us with it, patience. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to, made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we'll be looking at the book of Philippians, written by Paul the Apostle. And we're going to see what the Bible says about joy and anxiety. Paul actually tells us the terrible circumstances that the Philippians are experiencing. First, they, um, they, 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 they're getting news that Paul is in jail. The person writing this letter, Paul, who they love, is in jail because he's a Christian, which means soon enough they'll be persecuted. Two, there are false teachers infiltrating the church, trying to cause confusion with false teaching. And three, there's division, disunity among members of the church. But despite these terrible circumstances, Paul tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. How, Paul? Rejoicing in bad circumstances is not what we do. When we hear bad news, we tend to spiral into anxiety. Even thinking about the new year may be causing you some anxiety. Maybe it's the idea that you've got to go back to that job in the new year that you hate. Or realizing that you're much farther behind than you thought you'd be by 2020. If you're feeling anxious, let's look at what Paul says is the antidote to our anxiety. And it all depends on what we rejoice in. Because what we rejoice in shows us whether we live a life of joy and peace or whether we live in anxiety. And when we rejoice in the Lord and not our circumstances, we find joy through prayer in who God is. When we rejoice in the Lord and not our circumstances, we find joy through prayer in who God is. So our three points today, what is joy? What steals joy? And what restores joy? So what is joy? What steals joy? What restores joy? So let's look at what is joy. Paul uses the word joy 16 times in this letter. 16 times. 
And in the verse we're about to look at, he starts with an imperative, a command. He says, rejoice in the Lord. So what does Paul mean? What Paul is showing us, that what is joy? Joy is a deep, persistent satisfaction in who God is. Joy is a deep, persistent satisfaction in who God is. So let's unpack this. Look at chapter 4, verse 4 with me in your bulletins. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. In this short verse, Paul describes two characteristics of joy. The first characteristic, rejoice in who God is. And the second characteristic, how often we rejoice. So let's look at who the Lord is. And to do so, we need to see who is Jesus. Specifically, what has Jesus done for us? And what will Jesus do? So let's first look at how Paul describes who Jesus is, but what he's done for us. What has Christ done for us? In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul describes how Christ was humiliated for us. In verses 6 to 8, he explains how Jesus, while being God, became a human like you and I. We're talking about the all-powerful creator, the eternal God, the independent God, becoming a human baby. I'm a little familiar with this. It's a baby that needs diaper changes, a baby that depends on mom for milk, a baby that needs to grow, to learn to walk, to learn to talk, to mature. And Jesus didn't grow up as the son of royalty or a prince. He grew up in a blue-collar home as a carpenter's son. I mean, this is quite the contrast from being God. But that's not the most humiliating part. What is humiliating <laughs> is that he lived a perfect life that none of us could. That he was then mocked, beaten, had his limbs crucified on the cross. And why? Because he took the punishment of our sin, the slow and painful, brutal, humiliating death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that should have been us. He did this because he loves you. He was humiliated. He gave up everything to become nothing for you. This is why we can find joy in who Christ is. God didn't leave us to die for ourselves, but he sent Christ to be humiliated for us. That we be saved from sin and death. So to rejoice in who God is, is to see what Christ has done for us. Now let's look at what Christ will do. 
what Christ will do. This is God's end game. This is the end game of God's plan for all of humanity, and it's in what Christ will do. Earlier in Paul's letter in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, after explaining the humiliation of Christ, Paul then tells us of Christ's exaltation. He paints the prophetic picture of every knee bowing to Christ. Every knee in the universe. Every single person in heaven, on earth, everywhere, laying themselves before the true and mighty King, Jesus Christ. This is a scene of what Christ will do when he comes again to rule the world. The book of Revelation actually describes what Christ will do in more detail. It shows us the picture of true justice prevailing overall. That suffering and death will be defeated. That every tear will be wiped away. Earth completely restored. There's no global warming. There's no riots. There's no oppressive governments, disease, cancer. And all forms of suffering and death ceases when Christ comes again. We get to be a part of this exaltation. Can you imagine this kind of life? And whether you are Christian or not, I mean, don't you want this? This is what Christ does when he comes again. And we can rejoice because one day death and suffering will cease. Justice will prevail. We know how this story to rejoice in who God is is to know what Christ will do. Are you worried about your future? Are you worried about the new year? Think of this future. Christ will arrange to us. This is promised to us. This is what we will partake in. So the first characteristic of Christian joy is to find joy in who Christ is. And to do that, we rejoice in all of who is Christ. What Christ will do. Sorry, what Christ has done and what Christ will do. The second characteristic of Christian joy. Paul shows us how often we should rejoice. This is a simple one. The answer is Always. Always. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Always. I say rejoice. No matter our circumstances, our mood, the good, the bad. Christians, we can find, we can always find joy in what Christ has done and what Christ will do. And I want to briefly look at the end of verse 5. It says, the Lord is at hand. Now this sentence is actually an interest among scholars because Paul could be doing two things. One, he's either referencing what Christ will do, God's end game, when he comes back, or he's literally saying that the Lord is near. 
the Lord is close by. There's an intimacy with God. Paul is probably saying both things. If you look at the position of the phrase in between telling us to rejoice in who God is and to not be anxious in the next verse, it's a literary bridge. Paul is telling us we can rejoice because Christ will come again. And we don't need to be anxious because God is near now. struggle with anxiety because you wonder if God really cares about you. He died for you. He rose again from death for you. And one day he will exalt you with him. He is near now. So our first point what is joy? Joy is a deep and persistent satisfaction in who God is. So let's move on to our second point. What steals joy? Our second point, what steals joy? When we make the circumstances of our life the barometer of our happiness and joy, I mean, the high points are easy, but all it takes is unexpected bad news to shatter the illusion. Two years ago, around this time of the year, marked my fifth month of unemployment. I worked hard at a job. I got promoted. I had a team that I was managing. I got a raise, but all it took was an unexpected drop in revenue to make my position obsolete. For weeks, for months, I beat myself up. The anxiety consumed me. It crippled me. Now I knew the joy of the Lord, but I, I didn't believe it. I believed in the lies of anxiety. If you've been in a similar circumstance, if you're in that kind of circumstance now, I mean, this sounds sadly familiar. You begin to obsess over every detail of what you did to let this happen. You begin to worry about what you should have done. And then you stress about what you need to do now to fix your circumstances. It wasn't until I looked to God in prayer that I was able to break out of this perpetual treadmill of anxious self-dependence. It took me five months to figure that out. In anxiety, we desperately look to ourselves for solutions. We might consult others and ask for wisdom and ask for advice. But who do we not go to? We don't go to God. Anxiety makes us look at ourselves instead of God for answers in these circumstances. And if Paul, as if Paul was reading the minds of the Philippians and reading our minds in anxiety, look at in chapter 4, verse 
four, uh, 5 with me, I believe. Actually, it's verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. He says to do something. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Paul's imperative to us is to not be anxious about anything, even in the worst circumstances. Because anxiety is believing two lies. The first lie is about God and his love for me. And the second lie is about, my, about me and my place with God. To help us understand this anxiety that Paul is speaking of, scholars undoubtedly believe that Paul is referencing the times that Jesus spoke about anxiety. And there are two accounts of Jesus speaking about anxiety in Matthew 6, 25 and Luke 12, 22. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. And the first lie that we tell ourselves in anxiety is the lie about God and his love for us. In anxiety, we believe the lie that God doesn't care. We believe the lie that God doesn't love us. In Matthew 6 and Luke 12, Jesus explains, if he, if God can feed and shelter the birds of the air, think of dirty Toronto pigeons with me. If, if God can shelter and feed them, you don't think God will feed and shelter you? Why? God will feed and shelter you. God will provide for you because you mean much to him. You mean much to him more than some dirty bowling ball sized flying rat. Jeremiah 10, 12 to 13 describes God as the God who made the earth by his power. He preserves it by his wisdom. With his own understanding, he stretched out the heavens. When he speaks in thunder, the heavens roar with rain. This is the eternal God that spoke the universe into existence. This is the God, the triune God that is beyond the limitations of space and time. He exists eternally. Completely powerful, complete control over all things. And this great and good and powerful God, as Paul describes in verse 5, is near. Not only is he near, but he loves you. He loves you so much. He hears you. He knows your needs. You mean much to him. As I was investigating the Christian faith in university, I would look at all these different religions, and many of them had this image of a powerful and great God. But the difference of this Christian God was that not only was he powerful and good, but he drew near to me. I mean, even more scandalous was that though God knew the gap that divided me from him, my sin, my disobedience, that was placed on Christ. God took my sin and died for me. I mean, this is far beyond anything else that I saw in every other religion. This powerful God 
would die for my sins, the things I've done, and why? So that I can have a personal relationship with Him. Who is this God that is so different than any other? Don't you want to get to know this God? This is the God in the Bible who is powerful, yet good. He's mighty, yet he's near. This is the God that we rejoice in no matter our circumstance. Because this great and unchanging God completely loves and values you. And the second lie we tell ourselves is about me and where I belong. In anxiety, we believe the lie that we don't matter to God, that I don't belong with God, but we do matter. As Christians, we become his children. In Luke 12, 30, Jesus explains, after explaining the lies of anxiety, he refers to God as the Father who knows our needs. Because of Christ exchanging our sin with his righteousness, God sees us as he sees his son, Jesus. Galatians 4, 6 describes how because we have the spirit of God as Christians, as sons and daughters, we cry out to our dad. We matter to God because we are his children. And Jesus, as he continues about anxiety in Matthew 6 and Luke 12, he leaves us with these, these instructions. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What Jesus is telling us is to look to God's kingdom. Look to God's kingdom because you belong there. You have everything you need. And Paul, in a similar manner, reminds the Philippians that you are citizens. You have a citizenship in heaven. You're citizens of heaven. Look to the day that God will be with you and you will be with him. God's children, as God's children, as citizens of heaven, we belong to God in his heavenly kingdom. A perfect kingdom described as a paradise with God now and in eternity. So we can rejoice in God because as his children, this world isn't ours. This isn't home. We do have a home without brokenness, suffering, or pain with the one who loves us and whom we love. So when we rejoice in God, these anxious lies become quieter. Our instinct to anxiously look at ourselves for answers begins to fade away when we realize that only a powerful and good God can be the answer. So we looked at what is joy. We've looked at what steals joy. Now let's look at what restores joy. If you are anxious right now, let's look at Paul's antidote to anxiety. And Paul's antidote to anxiety is to pray. So what restores joy? Look at chapter 4, verse 6 with me. We'll finish this verse. Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Paul's antidote to anxiety is to pray. What does it mean to pray? To pray is to go to God. Going to him about everything, your circumstance, your need, your desires, making these things known to God. And even though he knows your needs, he listens. He answers prayer. Because to pray is to rejoice. To pray is to rejoice. Imagine with me. You have an audience with the eternal creator of the world. Fifteen feet in front of you is the throne of God in all its glory. And he's sitting right there. This is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And he's sitting there waiting for you to talk to him. He's eager to listen. So you confidently walk up face to face with God. You have his complete, undivided attention. And unlike a C-suite executive or the EVP of the company you work at, you don't need a meeting maker, a calendar invite. You don't need to prove that you're worth your time because to God, you're his child. He wants to listen to you. You matter to him. You have direct access to God. So the first way we can restore our joy is that when we pray, we rejoice in the Lord by drawing near to him. We can boldly come before God, make our requests known to him. Hebrews 4.16 describes going to God as let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God who was once inaccessible, separated from us because of our sin, we can now confidently enter God's holiness and not die because of the blood of Christ over us. The sacrifice of our sins, his righteousness placed on us means that God is always there. So when you pray, and it feels like you're praying to a brick wall. It's not that he isn't there, but it could be because you don't believe he's there. Pray, draw near to God because he is there. The second way we can restore our joy is that when we pray, we rejoice in the Lord by thanking him for his goodness. To pray is to plant yourself in the complete dependence God's goodness. In verse 6, Paul stresses the importance of the foundation of prayer, that it's with thanksgiving. It's good to think of the times that God has provided for you, the times that God has answered your prayer. It's good to know his providence. But where can we look to see God's ultimate expression of goodness? To see God's greatest form of goodness was our first point. What is joy? To look at joy in who Jesus is. 
God's ultimate goodness to us is that we offer him nothing. We disobeyed him. We hated him. We were in sin. Yet he still loves us with an unimaginable, unconditional love. A love that is expressed through the sacrificial life of Jesus Christ. Who humbled himself to take our sin and shame. The brokenness of the world he took onto himself. So that we would be set free from sin. And by his righteousness we would be with God in eternity. Do you know what this means? It means that God had all this in mind. Had you in mind when he created the heavens and the earth. God knew what it would take, that he would have to send his son to die for us. He knows that we offer him nothing, yet he did this simply because of his love for us. This is God's ultimate form of goodness that we can be thankful for. To thank God in this way reminds us that we deserve nothing. Yet we've been given everything in any circumstance. In Jesus, we can look back and thank God that he sent his son to save us from sin. What he's done. And then in Jesus, we can look forward and thank God that Christ will come again to defeat death and suffering. What he'll do. If we can look back and if we can look forward... What does that mean for us right now? We can know that God is good now. If he started this journey, he will get us to the end now. With thanksgiving, reflect on God's goodness. Look back, look forward, and look upward for your needs right now. The third way that we can restore the result of praying, the result of rejoicing, is that we are given peace. Look at verse 7 with me. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ. A scholar describes how that to be anxious because of suffering and circumstance are reasonable to have the peace of God in the face of opposition transcends human reason. Verse 7 shows us that by prayer, peace overcomes us. A peace that doesn't make sense. A peace that is not pragmatic. That even in the midst of everything failing and falling apart, we can be content in all circumstances like Paul in jail rejoicing. Because we can find joy in what Christ has done and what Christ will do and not our circumstance. Many years ago, I was introduced to a friend named Jacqueline. The day that I met her was the day that she learned that her cancer had spread too far. There's no treatment that she could do to heal her. 
And when she told this news to me and a couple others, we did the only thing that we could do. We prayed. A year later, at her baptism, she would say these words. I know that even though I've repented of my sin and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, my Lord and Savior, it doesn't mean that my cancer will be cured. I don't need to be cured because I have strength from God and know that through it all, I will never be alone. I'm excited to see God's plans for me, whether it is to die in Christ in this cancer or to live in Christ. I can only see this cancer as a blessing in disguise. And through that have learned so much and have so much to be thankful for. This can be said only by someone who knows joy and peace of the Lord. Only someone who knows this joy and peace can be thankful for something as terrible as cancer because she knows who Christ is, what he's done, and what he'll do. So what do we do with all of this now? We rejoice in God in prayer. Let anxiety be the indicator that you need to pray. The next time you feel anxiousness coming over you, pray right then and there. You have direct access to God. Boldly approach his throne and pray about everything. What you are anxious about, God knows your needs. There's nothing that he doesn't care about that you care about. Ask God boldly according to his will. If, if you need clarity for a difficult situation, ask for clarity. If you need wisdom to talk to someone, ask for wisdom. Mark eleven twenty four, and other verses tell us to ask God in prayer. And if prayer still feels impossible, know that Christ is praying for you now. He is our advocate to the Father who is interceding, praying for us right now. So look back with thanksgiving for what he's done. Look forward with hope and gratitude for what he'll do. And look upward with faith for who he is. Because if, if he's been good to us before, and if he's promised us great future he is good to us now if you're skeptical or questioning christianity i'll be first to admit with you that this sounds impractical too good to be true you wouldn't be wrong to think that way but if this god is real and he is if christ was a true historic person that died and resurrected, which he was. Your circumstances may change, but this powerful and good God doesn't. His offer for you stands. While you're on this earth, you too can have joy and peace that transcends all understanding. So let's rejoice in the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you as people who need you. We come to you as people who are thankful for what Christ has done and what Christ will do. For those of us here right now who are anxious and are eagerly searching ourselves for answers, God, may we turn to you. May we know your goodness and kindness through your son, Christ. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.